Hey, you're not going to want to miss our podcast. We're going to be talking about how the church that was once the thought leader in the community uh, has now become almost impotent and irrelevant. Nobody seems to go to the church. Nobody seems to ask pastors what their position or what the Bible says about things. Uh, Like I said, we've almost become irrelevant. How did this happen? We're going to look at two major historical things that took place in our nation, one legally uh, in the courts, and the other is a radical redefinition of what it means to preach the gospel. Both have had tragic consequences on religion and public life today. You won't want to miss this podcast. Hey, welcome to the Ron Johnson Discipleship Podcast. We're waving the banner of freedom and liberty and connecting it all to Jesus Christ and his lordship over all of reality, and we're glad that you are joining us today. Um, I just got back in late last night and got up early this morning, but but this is what I love to get up early for, is this podcast, and I got in late last night, as you know, because we just got in from Honduras, where we saw uh, another class of of, uh, Roar students graduate. It was part of a great church there that's really impacting the nation. Got to do two, uh, Marion and I, two marriage conferences, which was really incredible. And, uh, and really seeing the fruit, you know, we came in, we laid a foundation of, of a biblical understanding of marriage uh, in that whole network of churches, and we're really seeing some great fruit in, the, in their marriages, with their kids, and just in the health of the church. I uh, got to listen to this amazing church service while I was gone. Living Stones, this guy named Pastor oh, Andrew, yeah. he killed it, man. He had a Kevlar vest on and everything. <laughs> um, no, I just wanted to say but that. But nobody got shot. Nobody <laughs> <laughs> got shot. But what a powerful, you know, we got life groups starting this week, yep. and um, uh, what a powerful, powerful message on discipline, and, and the discipline involved in, in getting out of our comfort zones to get connected relationally, yeah. and uh, just applause. And, and of course, the testimonies uh, that uh, uh, Matt's been capturing and the videos that we're showing on Sunday uh, impacting a lot of lives. I hear I hear fruit on that all the time, just the power of our stories. Yeah. I was just talking to a, a lady right before our podcast, and she was asking, like, she's like, yeah, Asian people generally more more disciplined. And I said, you know what? <laughs> we're more disciplined in certain areas. In general, yeah, that, the question is a little bit funny because it's like, does the color of your skin make somebody more disciplined? Right. But it's really a it's, cultural. It's a thing. cultural not, issue. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not a skin issue. And and my response is like, you know, in, in certain things. But but basically, if you th- there's a reason why and we talked about the book before uh, that we, we the podcast we did before the book that changed your world. Yeah. Um, there's a reason why Western civilization is taking over the world. It's because it's successful because the the, the Christian Judeo uh, foundation laid out. For people to practice certain disciplines that allows yeah. them to thrive, right. you know. So again, you go back to it, it. It's you look at why a nation thriving or why a culture is thriving, successful is because they practice disciplines that we don't often talk about. Yeah, self control, self control, yeah. marriage, hard work, hard work. You know, caring uh, about time, not being late, being yep. on time. These are all getting up early. Late yeah. The ant, <laughs> right? How about this, like? Uh, weeding out corruption, yeah. you know, and when we, once we start losing those disciplines, I don't care how special you think you are, you're going to start, your, your culture is going to start to corrode and you're going to start yep. losing, falling behind because of that, right? Yep. So. Well, speaking of corroding, we have a lot to talk about <laughs> in our culture today. Uh, you know, just by way of reminder, we'll get into this in just a moment, but we're, uh, we're reading this wonderful book by Eric Metaxas called Letter to the American Church. We encourage you all to pick up a copy. Um, and, uh, and he's just, you know, asking the question, you know, how did the church get 
to be where we are today, where we're, we seem to be impotent and irrelevant. And kind of as a lead into that, you know, um, we've been seeing on the news that the uh, governor of New Mexico just decided uh, by means of uh, emergency decree, right? Um, uh, and, and, and just to go back, you know, these emergency decrees were used, there, there's a purpose for them. Like if there, a war breaks out and, and we don't have time to pull Congress together or our representatives together, something crazy is going on. I mean, this should be rare, it should be exceptional, and it should be momentary. Um, and yet we saw during the pandemic that governors and, and uh, local authorities were using these emergency powers to really uh, push an agenda of control over people's lives that, again, where you, you begin to question, wait a minute, is this really why, why the whole idea of an emergency order came into being? In this situation, uh, the New Mexico governor just decided out of the clear blue that somehow the Second Amendment no longer applies to citizens in New Mexico because she decided that there's there's an emergency reason why she needs to suspend uh, the Second Amendment. Now, you know, you can't suspend the Second Amendment. You know, no one person has the arbitrary power, and you certainly can't invoke emergency powers to remove uh, the the freedom of law-abiding citizens to own a weapon and to protect themselves. Um, but this is exactly what she's trying to do. And, th- and this is alarming. Uh, this, this was a quote. She said, no constitutional right is intended to be absolute. Um, this highlights a fundamental misunderstanding of secular folks that rights do not come from governments, they come from God, and that governments exist to protect those rights that come from God, which, uh, contrary to what the, what she says here, are intended to be absolute because uh, they go right back to the fact that God created us to be free and governments are here to restrain evil and to protect the freedoms uh, of of people made in the image and likeness of God. So so here we got a crazy crazy scenario. Even even the leftists are realizing, whoa, she she did something that that nobody has the power to do here. But the fact that any official in the United States of America would be so brazen to do something uh, like this should cause us to say, how in the world did this woman get elected? And, uh, and she should be removed from office as quickly as possible. But this is, this is kind of where we're at today. We saw these, these um, emergency orders, right? That was the whole um, argument behind um, uh, shutdowns of businesses, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Uh, all of this was because, well, we have an emergency and, and we just ha- the government has to take control. And, um, and we need to be ready for this. I saw, I think it was the city of Odessa in Texas is being proactive they're passing legislation that basically says there will be no business shutdowns, there will be no mask mandates, there will be no mandatory vaccinations, and they're they're getting a, a, a lead on this because it doesn't take a, you know a rocket scientist to, to look at the news and watch what's going on and realize we might be up for for round two here if we don't wake up. So anyway, and 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 in a moment of incredible, beautiful irony, any of you that are tennis uh, fans. The Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic won the U.S. Open, which was sponsored by Moderna. <laughs> and he was, uh, I love this, he was clarifying his position, which was our position. The, the media calls him an anti-vaxxer. He's not an anti-vaxxer any more than our stance here at Living Stones was anti-vax. You know, if you're pro-life, you get called anti-choice. Uh, the left always likes to put the, the the anti-prefix in front of our stance, which isn't true. He clarified his position. He says, I'm not anti-vax. 
I'm pro-freedom. I want people to have the freedom to choose. Right. And that's been our stance all along. We're not anti-anything. We just believe that people should be able to make those decisions for themselves. And that that's not the government's role to determine what kind of medical treatment you should be receiving. Um, so anyway, yay. I can't, here's a guy that's going to go down as one of the greatest tennis players of all time. He's approaching the record of, I think it's 24 uh, national, you know, uh, Grand Slam titles, Grand yeah. Slam titles or whatever. So way to go. And uh, I'm grateful for, uh, for his leadership and, and, and uh, refusal to bend. On a, on a sad note, uh, I don't know if you were watching the Monday night football game. So much hype going into that. Aaron Rodgers, another pro-choice guy when it comes to vaccination. He was <laughs> yeah. he was really hammered for his stance. Um, tore his Achilles. Now, me being a Bears fan, I can't rejoice, but all the pain that he gave me being a Packer quarterback right. over the years, was I, I, it's hard for me to get over. But I do uh, pray that his... Uh, I, there was a Babylon B post, yeah. <laughs> which for those who don't know Babylon B, it's a hysterical post, but... Yeah. He says, expert says that uh, Aaron Rodgers hurt his leg because he was not vaccinated. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. It's either anti-vax or global warming uh, is the cause. The cause for him tore his knee. Yeah, 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 for his torn Achilles. Anyway, let's get into our our discussion. We're kind of going part two here because we we barely got into the chapter one of that wonderful book. But he was dealing with the question, how in the world, like, for instance, during the pandemic, we said it was a gut chuck, a gut check for the church um, because we were really caught metaphorically with our britches down, so to speak. Um, like, who are we? What is our call as the church? And and how, you know, we were talking last week, when, when you have governments shutting churches down, governments calling us non-essential, and then you saw the blatant hypocrisy of other places open, um, uh, even strip clubs and, and marijuana dispensaries and, and the like. Uh, and then you saw this unbelievable compliance, not just from the from leadership in the church, pastors, but from Christian people. Like, how in the world do you just roll over and go, oh, government wants me to shut my business down, which is how I provide for my family. Okay, I'll just shut my business down. Um, I mean, it was just amazing uh, compliance uh, from the church. And it's like, how do we get so weak and pathetic? Uh, that, was, that was a question he was trying to, to answer last week or trying to raise last week. Uh, how, how are we so guilty of the same silence that the German church was, was guilty of? And um, I, I remember Francis Schaeffer, he had an incredible quote. He, he basically said that the, the sin of our generation has been our failure to stand for truth as truth, meaning truth with a capital T. In other words, it's not like, well, Andrew, I'm glad you believe that, and I'm glad that that's true for you. Um, Christianity has never been that approach. Uh, it, it is incredibly uh, exclusive in the sense that Jesus has the audacity to claim that he's true for everything and everyone everywhere at all time. I mean, that's right. that's a radical statement. Like, you don't—how do we get in a situation where we sit back and just go, well, you know— who are we to impose, you know, impose our values on other people? And who are we to suggest to be able to say that such and such is wrong behavior? Right. Uh, you know, and so we just backed away, like somehow we are being the bad guy. And yet, as he points out in that book, the, the, the irony is the opposition was doing the same thing to us. They were making truth claims, absolute truth claims. They were accusing us of somehow imposing our views on them. 
And what we didn't realize was that was exactly what was happening to us at that very moment. They were coming in and saying, you know, you Christians, you know, you know, you need to keep your faith private. Everybody doesn't believe like you. So just go to church and and you can, you know, you know, read your Bibles and, you know, do whatever you want in the privacy of your own home. But don't you dare try to believe those those viewpoints in the public arena. Don't don't you try to express that. Because, you know, that's wrong. And and I think a lot of people, like, bought into that. Like, oh, yeah, good point. But the whole point of the gospel is Jesus makes radical truth claims, and he, and he, claims, he claims the authority to make those claims globally. Like, there's not ever been a person who is not under the authority and the lordship of Jesus and under what he says is true. So, you know, like we talk about sexual ethics— it's not just true for me because I go to church and I believe the Bible. The Bible teaches that this is true, period, whether you are a Christian or not. And is that controversial? Yeah. But the job of the church was to be a prophetic voice to a dark culture and say, hey, that's wrong. And and this is true. And this is not, this is, this is a falsehood. And it doesn't matter whether you personally subscribe to it or not. Jesus, it doesn't just like, God doesn't go, oh, you don't believe in me? Okay, I guess I don't exist. You know, I mean, that's not the way this works. We believe in truth with a big T. Yeah, I, I think we forget that there's a reason why Jesus was crucified. He wasn't crucified because he's saying, my opinion is this. You don't get crucified to the by the the Roman Empire in the cruelest way possible because he yeah. he pronounced his thoughts on a certain subject like a Greek philosopher pontificating about something. He made a truth claim that ticked a lot of people off, and he wouldn't retract it. He wouldn't go back on his word, and they crucify him for it. Now, I think there's another um, delusion that we're under is that when we make truth truth claims, we are being mean mean-spirited, and we're being unneighborly and unfriendly. Now, you could do it and say it in a mean way, but that's exactly what Jesus did. So you might as well accuse Jesus of being unloving and unfriendly because he made these truth claims. But but somehow in our culture, I think that's the attack on Christian people is 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 this impression that if you made these truth claims, then you are being a jerk or you're being a bigot. And we need right. to again take a step back and say that's not the, that's that's not the truth because right. everyone's making truth claims. Even when someone says it's true for you and not for me, that is a truth claim in itself. Right. You well, know. And we talk about the, the concept of the naked public square. The idea was, well, we can't bring religion or anybody's you know, uh, uh, worldview into the public square because we have to separate, you know, push religion out, and it has to be neutral. Well, as soon as you make it neutral, it's not neutral. Something filled the void. So as soon as like, you push God out of the public square, now you have atheism as the official religion. Like You're going to have some worldview that's going to, to take its place. You're going to have some truth claim. Absolutely. Yeah, so for anyone to come say, say to you, oh, you're being a jerk, you're being a bigot because you're making a truth claim, you should say, are you making a truth claim right now? Yeah, well, when I say, hey, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Are you absolutely true about that? Right. You know, I mean, you know, anytime anybody opens their mouth, they do so on the basis that what they're saying is, is absolutely true. Right. Uh, and so we need to wake up and realize our silence has left a vacuum that has been filled by people who share uh, ungodly, unbiblical, unconstitutional uh, ideas that are actually dangerous. 
And again, we're not attacking people. We've said that over and over on this podcast, but we are attacking ideas uh, and ideologies and philosophies and truth claims that are wicked. And in fact, we have a responsibility to point out that they are wicked, uh, and we have a responsibility to point out the good news of the gospel. And so this idea that somehow we, we have to be good Christians and mind our own business, stay in church, uh, keep our religious views um, you know, qu- quarantined uh, is nonsense. It, it creates a gospel that is private, subjective, personal, pietistic, and as we said, irrelevant and impotent. Uh, the truth about it, the Second Amendment, I'm, I'm sorry, the First Amendment, is that we have the freedom to freely exercise our faith wherever we are, whenever, <laughs> including in the church, in the pulpits, and to talk about issues like politics um, and like ungodly leaders, to talk about these things from the pulpit. Uh, that is the absolute right we have and the freedom that we have given to us in our First Amendment, because that's what religious liberty means. It is the free exercise of your beliefs. Um, and so it's, it, it, he points out, Metaxas, in the book, that th- this is not new to have these ideas attacked. When William Wilberforce was speaking about slavery, uh, a, a grave evil, uh, it was thought an absolute scandal that a man would bring his religion into the public sphere and dare to impose his views through the laws of the land. Now, the irony, as we pointed out, is that anybody who passes a law is imposing their views on the land. That's the nature of laws. Laws tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do, what's good, what's evil, what is punished, uh, and what is celebrated. That's the nature of law. So somebody's values are going to be put into law. Uh, and so it's, it, it is ridiculous that they would attack him. The problem was the reason they were attacking him is because there was money attached to their position. These people were getting rich off of slavery. And, and obviously, you know, Wilberforce comes in and upsets the apple cart. Well, he's, that's a major industry, major economic engine at the time. So he's coming and he's saying he's bringing in biblical truth to say we ought not to do this as a nation. Of course, their attack on him is not that, oh, but you're going to cost us money. No one's going to talk about that, right? Oh, instead, yeah, yeah. They're gonna uh, come. How dare you accuse us of that? Right. Yeah. But instead, you know, because that's not happening in D.C. today, but <laughs> well, they're coming in and they're attacking him on the basis of his imposing his religion on other people. It's 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 an exact reflection of our world today. So yep. for those who said this is new, oh, we're progressive, we're moving to new things. No, this has been done before. Now, this topic, slave trade, just happens that in today's culture seems out of fashion, right? right. Everyone's on board. Yeah, the slave trade is terrible. Okay. Right. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the, we look back now and yeah, and everybody no matter what where you are in the political spectrum would be saying, "Oh, yeah, that's terrible." But it wasn't it wasn't viewed as terrible at the time. Right. And we're dealing with similar things today. Like for instance, it's, it's very uh in style to be against um human trafficking. But when you talk about abortion for instance, uh, that's not in style, and that's a, a, a very divisive topic, right? Uh, hopefully, I'm believing in our in our lifetime, we'll look back and go, how in the world could we have ever embraced that? Um, that it would be as as reprehensible as slavery was, uh, but we're not there yet. Well, I will even say right now, free speech is now a taboo taboo topic. You know, yep. you think free speech is, is, should be the foundation for a democratic republic, right? But but even now, free speech is under attack, free expression of ideas, because it's tied into big money. 
Right. Same thing as before, yep. right? Yep. So. so so let's figure out and let's talk today about where did this crazy idea get introduced? I mean, America was founded on, on Christian principles, um, prayer, uh, Bible reading and instruction, all of these things, the, the Judeo, Judeo-Christian worldview of morality and ethics were part of our public education system from day one. In fact, the whole impetus behind public education was that people should be taught to read, people should be equipped for life, and they should be taught to read because they need to read the Bible, which is the foundation of our liberties. So this this was all a given. In fact, as late as the 1960s, this was the prayer that was prayed by teachers and by children to start the school day, all right? Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. I mean, acknowledge Almighty God, express our dependence upon Him, ask Him to bless us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. I mean, I can't think of a, of a more simple and ben, and benign prayer in terms of, uh, of radicalness. I mean, there's, I don't, uh, the, you know, what what is in here? <laughs> we're, we're acknowledging there's a God, and we're imploring Him to bless us, our teachers, our nation, etc. To start your day with that, this was this was normal education. Uh, in fact, in the in the 1950s, in the Dallas public school system, there were classes taught on the Bible. Uh, so how do we get so far away from that? Uh, and uh, Metaxas points out that it was in the 1960s that a bunch of radical uh, Supreme Court decisions were made. Now, it's interesting, David Barton points out that the makeup of the Supreme Court at that time in history uh, was largely uh, the Supreme Court justices all had political backgrounds except for one, um, and that these rulings were political in nature. They were not judicial in nature. In other words, they were not based on legal precedent. This was judicial activism that was taking place because it, there was no court cases cited for any of their decisions. Like, there was no precedence. So these people were not acting like good attorneys. They were acting like good politicians. They were pushing an agenda just like we see in our, our courts today. So this is what happened. Uh, in 1962, we had a change from seeing um, uh, the First Amendment dealing with uh, no federal denomination, right? That the, the, the United States cannot be all Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians. Um, in other words, we don't have a national denomination. Uh, that was switched to forbidding any kind of religious activity in public. Now, that's a radical change to say, you know what, the government should not be promoting any denomination. In other words, keep the government out of, uh, of our religious expression to turning it completely on its head and saying that there should be no religious expression at all in public. And let me give you some examples here. Um, freedoms of speech and press are guaranteed to students and teachers unless the topic is religious, at which time such speech becomes unconstitutional. And there's a number of court decisions on that. It's unconstitutional for, un, for students to see the Ten Commandments since they might read, meditate upon, respect, or obey them. Stone versus Graham, 1980. Now, imagine we, we wouldn't want to put the Ten Commandments up in school because the students might actually read them, think about them, and be influenced by the Ten Commandments as if the Ten Commandments are evil or bad. Um, if a student prays over his lunch, it is unconstitutional for him to pray out loud. This is radical. A school song was struck down because it promoted values such as honesty, truth, courage, and faith in the form of a prayer. 
Uh, it is unconstitutional for a war memorial to be erected in the shape of a cross. The Ten Commandments, despite the fact that they are the basis of civil law, are depicted in, in gravestone in the U.S. Supreme Court, may not be displayed at a public courthouse. Um, how about this one? It is unconstitutional for a public cemetery to have a planter in the shape of a cross, for if someone were to view that cross, it could cause, quote, emotional distress and thus constitute an injury in fact. So, I mean, this was a radical reversal to where we're no longer talking about the government staying out of our business in terms of the expression of our religious views. Now we have an open, hostile, anti-religious bias that is being imposed upon people of faith, uh, which drove the expression of our faith into the four walls of the church. And what it did, it put a muzzle, a self-imposed muzzle on pastors. Because, you know, I, I can attest to the fact that every year I would get a nasty letter from Americans for uh, for, for the separation of, of church and state, basically threatening me at every election cycle that if I chose to speak out on anything that was relevant in terms of our, our public life, that I could lose our 501c3 status. Uh, or be fined, blah, 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 blah. It, it was a, a veiled threat to basically uh, shut up and to self-censor. And, and many pastors believed it. And they just said, well, I guess we can't talk about that because, God forbid, we don't want to lose our 501c3 status, even though it is impossible for, for the government to take away our, uh, our 501c3 status for simply preaching the gospel and preaching biblical issues and applying them to, to, uh, to public life. And yet many pastors self-censored. Um, and they're like, well, we can't do that. It's against the law. Uh, and again, this was, this was the Johnson Amendment. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, who basically passed this in the IRS code um, to silence political opponents, especially the church, who were speaking out against some of the things that he was was doing. Now, mind you, we would not have the United States of America if the pulpits hadn't been brazenly outspoken against wickedness and evil of its day, especially as it related to King George III, right? And, uh, and so we would not even have the United States of America if pastors were not talking about these issues, calling them out, highlighting tyranny and injustice, and mobilizing their congregations to act. We talked about most of the militia uh, for the Revolutionary War were men who were raised up from local churches by their pastors. So we've, we've really come a long way, fallen a long way to where uh, we're in a situation where we are now, uh, where we feel like somehow we just don't want to be political. I think a lot of that came out of the 60s, and, and because we've never addressed it or never tried to readdress it, this is the mentality that we have today, where this is almost believed. Like if you went to most pastors and said, oh, do you believe in the separation of church and state as it's currently um, you know, conceived that, oh, yeah, 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 we, we really we have to stay away from those things because it's not, we're not allowed to do that. It's interesting because I've never heard about those specific decisions. I know in the 60s these, these cases happened, but I mean, just listening to that, what they sound like is basically it's a undercover purge of Christianity from public square. It's Absolutely. a purge. Absolutely. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a genocide of not maybe people, but basically the religious activities of, of, of Christianity per se. And it, it, like you said earlier, it leads an impression of a neutral playground, 
But what happens in the middle of that neutral playground is all of a sudden that neutrality is replaced by all kind of other things that's so, not neutral at yeah, all. So, right? so this is crazy. So instead of instead of humbly asking for God's blessing on our teachers, our the students, our nation, uh, now we have a situation where we're teaching kids to change their gender, and and their parents aren't even allowed to know. Or if parents try to stop them. The kids are taken away from their parents. I mean, something is going to replace our yeah. silence. Uh, we have all kinds of perverted books. I just saw where, you know, we had a, a, a congressional hearing on some of this perverted literature uh, that is being put into kids' sections and libraries and being taught in our public schools. So the point is, something will fill the void. And if the church uh, does not stand for truth and say, this is wicked and this is perverted and this will not happen on our watch, you're going to get all kinds of bizarre, twisted, nasty, uh, evil things that are going to take its place. And we're seeing that happen right now in public education. Um, and so the naked public square, as we said, does not stay naked. Now, let's talk again about a second development um, Metaxas asked this question. He said, why did Christian leaders submit to these unchristian and unidea, un-American ideas? And why are they submitting to them today? Have so many pastors really forgotten that it is God who calls them to their post and God who fills their churches and keeps them filled? In other words, why are, why are we just bending over and why are we being so complicit? I just came out with a post uh, a while ago on, on this New Mexico governor, and I just said, um, we have the moral obligation, the Christian obligation to ignore uh, that type of ruling. In other words, you don't obey that. And I loved it. The, the, uh, the law enforcement leadership of that state said, we will not enforce this law. That's what needs to happen. It's called um, uh, uh, the lesser magistrate. Uh, needs to step up and say, you know what, this is, this is an ungodly, unconstitutional, tyrannical edict, and we will not support this uh, at all. That's what's happening. But the church needs to be the one standing up saying, no, you know, like I said, it, I would tell every business owner, God forbid if government tries to shut you down again by some emergency order, do not shut your business. Break that law. It is not a law. It, it is a mandate. It is an order. It has not gone through the process of, of a representative form of government. There's been no debate. Uh, do not obey that law. If there are mandates um, for vaccinations, mandates for masks, do not obey that mandate. It is not the law. It is tyrannical, and the church should be the one loudly proclaiming these things, and yet we had pastors standing up. It's the Christian thing. Take the jab. Love your neighbor. Wear a mask. Love your neighbor. Practice social distancing. Love your neighbor. Follow those stupid, idiotic arrows uh, at at the big box stores, telling you how to how to walk up and down the aisle to buy your food. I mean, it, it is just absolute insanity, but it is it is moral uh, incompetence from the pulpit to to not speak about issues regarding truth and liberty. This has been our bread and butter, and somehow we lost the bread and can't find the butter. So let's talk That's about <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the the. Narrow definition of the gospel. You know, we've lost. I guess when we say preach the gospel, yeah, yeah. What are we talking about? Let's talk about what Metaxas says. How how is the when we say God preach the gospel? How is that word and that understanding radically shifted in the last fifty years? Yeah, and I'm not an expert on preach the gospel, but 
apparently, I'm assuming it means something like we just talk about Jesus. I just want to talk about Jesus and everything else. I'm going to let God take care of it. I'm going to let people make the rest of the conclusions, right? When it's just all about Jesus, how he died on the cross for his sins. So if you believe in him, you know, you're saved from hell. And then I'm going to let people kind of follow the rest, wherever wherever that might lead, wherever that may go. Okay. So yeah, so exactly. Yeah, that's 100% accurate. That's probably what the the, the, the idea gospel is. is, you know, Jesus died for your sins, receive him into your heart and someday you'll go to heaven. And that's we need to just keep our messaging there. The problem is and this is why this podcast exists. Jesus is Lord of all. He is not just Lord of the human heart and he's not just Lord of the next life. He's Lord of this life and everything in this life. But you heard pastors say, "Hey, we need to avoid cultural issues, quote, for the sake of the gospel." Like, what does that mean? Let's avoid, you know, imagine back in, in Bonhoeffer's day. Hey, let's avoid this nasty problem of the Nazis exterminating our Jewish neighbors, you know, um, let's, tra- trashing their businesses, st- shutting down their livelihoods, confiscating their wealth. Let's just preach the gospel. Let's avoid these nasty cultural issues. Or imagine um, during the, the, the uh, slavery debates, hey, let's not talk about slavery in our churches because, you know, we don't want to get involved in a culture war. And we might, we might, we might have some pro-slavery members at our church. And God forbid that the pastor gets up and condemns slavery because he might offend brother so-and-so who owns the wealthy business and who's a big tither, uh, and he might get mad and leave the church and go to the church down the street. I mean, apply it to the great moral issues of history past, and then ask pastors today, what about genital mutilation? What about gender confusion? What about the murder of the unborn? What about the trampling of our First Amendment rights? What about the trampling of our Second Amendment rights? What about the brazen uh, corruption taking place at the highest level of the land? Are these things just stuff we need to shut our mouths about? Uh, because somehow uh, we want to just we don't we don't want to come across as offensive to somebody. You know, I, I, I've never said this before. I'm going to say it on this podcast now. I have never come out and actually said. How in the world can you vote as a Democrat and call yourself a lover of Jesus? But we are at that day. Look at the Democratic platform and look at what they are promoting. And I ask anybody, how in the world, how in the world, in good conscience, in in light of the scriptures, how can you vote for a candidate who's who's pro-abortion, pro-gender mutilation, pro-homosexuality, pro-gay marriage? How do you vote for a pro-open borders, pro-mandatory this, that, and the other thing, uh, pro-shutting down First Amendment rights, uh, pro-keeping you from owning a weapon or being able to buy ammunition? How do you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, vote for somebody that that supports all of that party platform? Now, mind you, there are local, local candidates local communities who are good people weren't but but they're not they're not in all of that stuff but by being part of that party that is exactly what you are supporting and i just simply asked the question like well jesus isn't a democrat or republican no but if jesus is a citizen he has to vote for a democrat or a republican if he's going to vote 
So how do you vote for all of that and then come to church on Sunday and raise your hands and say hallelujah? I mean, this is nonsense. And um, so we're not promoting parties. We're promoting righteousness. But you have got to figure out which party platform more closely aligns or which candidate more closely aligns with biblical truth. And you have to stop trying to take this middle road where you don't take a stand at anything. Uh, avoid taking uh, any side in the divisive culture wars. Avoid being identified with a political party or a candidate. What cowardice! Like, so what are you going to do? Is hide in your closet or hide in your church? I don't want to be. I don't want to be uh, associated with a candidate. Well, why not support a godly candidate? And why not be overtly in support of a godly candidate? Uh, how does sitting in your closet, in your prayer closet, and just stepping out of the war? How does that help anything? I'm on a little plat, a little soapbox yeah, this go morning, for it. But, you go, but I'm, just, go I'm, I'm yeah. sick of it. How, uh, like people say, well, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to influence anybody. Are you kidding me? If there is a godly candidate, give me the biggest billboard possible to put in my front yard because I want everybody at our church to know your pastor is voting for that candidate, and I'd be glad to tell you why, and I'll also be glad to tell you from the pulpit why you cannot vote for that scoundrel, whoever the scoundrel happens to be. We have a moral responsibility for pointing these things out. And somehow staying out because we don't want to be divisive? Are you kidding me? Righteousness is always divisive. Jesus said he came to separate and divide. Um, every, every godly person that has ever stood up for anything that matters has been controversial. So why are we trying to be like Mr. Rogers in the pulpit these days? You know, let's just let's just be nice. You won't find nice anywhere in the fruit of the spirit. It's not in there. Uh, you're not going to find it. Now, I'm not saying be mean, but I'm just saying standing up for truth when truth has never been popular is anything but um, conciliatory. It's it is it is absolutely divisive, and you can't avoid it. And it's cowardly to just talk about you know, mental health issues or whatever about, uh, you know, let's, let's take groceries to our neighbor. Yeah, that's nice, but there's bigger issues at stake. Uh, and somehow we've, we've completely run away from that as if that's the Christian thing to do. It's, it is a cowardly thing to do. Uh, do we not stand against injustices? Will we not fight for what is right? He asked this question, when did speaking against injustice become merely political? Like when you're fighting for the unborn, why is that called political? You're fighting for the life of, of those who can't speak for themselves. This is not this is not political. This is moral. This is what the church does. This is who we are. Um, you know, I, I like to point out the times have changed, and and you have to you have to acknowledge that the times have changed. For instance, the Billy Graham Association. Billy Graham was able to speak the truth to Democrats, Republicans, independents, and they all embraced it because they're in that season of American history, we all basically ascribe to a Judeo-Christian worldview of morality and ethics. We could argue about how much money we should spend on welfare versus how much money we should spend on national defense. And, and, and those are debatable points. Um, but what was not debatable was the full embrace of a Judeo-Christian worldview by both parties. That's not the case anymore. And so you look at, for instance, Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham's ministry has many of the similar elements as, as his father. But Franklin Graham is much more prophetic. In other words, he has, a, he has a prophetic voice. He's dropping a plumb line. He is calling out evil. 
His dad never did that, but his dad didn't need to do that. His dad simply preached the gospel, right? He, he, he filled crusades. Um, Franklin's doing that too, but Franklin now has to speak out against evil in Washington, evil, evil policies, uh, because those things were not being pushed back in his dad's day, at least not to the degree that they are now. The times have changed. And I think in the church, if, if pastors don't recognize that the horse is out of the stable, I mean, it's been since the 1960s. We've had an overtly anti-Christian stance in the public arena against, against our faith. You can't keep doing business as usual. And so I'm trying to say to the church today, we better wake up and smell the coffee. We better shift from this ostrich head in the sand approach to, uh, to Christianity, or we will, we will not be in the nation with the freedoms that we have right now much longer. I mean, it is a, it is a place of urgency. Uh, and the church better wake up, and, and pastors better wake up. I think you make a good point. I think a lot of times we, we look to the good old days. We're hoping to go back to the good old days when these contentious issues uh, aren't there, and we can just, quote-unquote, preach the gospel. Because everyone understands what that means. There's not these cultural divides. There's not these cultural schisms in America today, and we didn't have to pick a side. The, the, the church world didn't have to pick a side because everyone was kind of in that place. I remember when I was in college, just probably you know, 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't nearly as divisive as it is today, you know. Uh, we had the luxury of being able to kind of just not really make a stance on these things. But like you said, we no longer have that luxury. And 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 for for leaders to say, you know what, I just want to wi- I just want to live as if I'm in the good old days. It's not going to happen. No. We're not in those times anymore. We are in no. different times, and we have to adapt different I, for, strategies. Here's a perfect example. I just saw where where Harvard University, which of course was one of the first universities founded in America, it was founded for the training of pastors. Pastors. It was founded for the glory of God. Harvard has now been ranked the number one most hostile anti-free speech zones in America. I mean, there is there is less free speech at Harvard than there is anywhere in America. All right, this is crazy. Um, that's what I'm talking about. You're going to send your kid off to Harvard because yeah, it's an Ivy League school. Yeah, and yeah, and you'll graduate an atheist is what'll happen um, because they will have these anti-Christian, radicalized, progressive Marxist views shoved down their throats. Um, and this is my, my point. This it's not the same place. We're not living in the same world. And the church has got to recapture our revolutionary zeal. Uh, we need to, you know, the church during the revolutionary times was the center uh, of public thought. It was the it was the, the the center of communicating the truth about the Bible and about Scripture to every reality in life and in, in the public arena. People came to the church, and it was the pastors who were the community leaders. We're just not doing that anymore. Uh, and we've we've gotten to a place where again, we think if we can just do nice things to people and you know uh, host blood drives, you know that that's great, and everybody's going to come to know Jesus because we're we're the church that does blood drives. Well, we did a blood drive here. I'm not against that, but that's not going to re- recapture our culture. It's going to take a recovering of our voice. We have to get healed from our spiritual laryngitis, all right? We've got to get our voice back. We have to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. All right. We're going to do a tease for next week's podcast because uh, this next chapter Go is ahead. pretty explosive. Jump on you know? in. That'll be a way we'll transition. Yeah, and, and, and basically, Arimataxis is comparing us to Germany back in the 30s Yep. Um, before the takeover of the Nazi re- regime. And basically... Um, 
Bonhoeffer. Yep. Bonhoeffer have a prophetic word for the church. Yep. And basically, Wilberforce is like, the, the American church keeps saying, oh, we're not like them. We're not like them. We'll never go down that same path. And Metaxas is like, we better practice some humility. And he and what we want to do is talk about what Bonhoeffer had to say to the church and how eerily prophetic those same words yep. that was not heeded by the German church is reflective of our culture today. Wow. So hey, I can't wait for that podcast. Yeah, and I hope you can't wait for that podcast. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next Thursday. Thursday.